so just to calibrate everybody, uh, first question, relative to biological equivalence requirements, what are the differences from MDD to MDR? Melissa, you're gonna take this one? Sure, thanks Lisa. So compared to the MDD, the MDR does require more substantial evidence that a product is equivalent, which manufacturers are finding a bit harder to achieve. Um, the MDR requires technical, biological, and clinical characteristics um, that are shared uh, with clinical equivalence to another device that you want to consider. So technical equivalence means that the products should be used under similar conditions of use, um, unlike the MDR, which had previously stated um, that they were the same indications for use. From a biological characteristic perspective, um, the device should use the same materials or substances that are in contact with the same human tissues or bodily fluids, um, same contact duration, same uh, release substances. It also takes into consideration degradation products and leachables as well. Um, and then the final piece, the clinical characteristics. Um, compared to the MDD, um, the MDR states that equivalent should be claimed for devices when used for the same clinical condition or purpose and has the same kind of user. Um, and then it removes gender and duration of use. Um, so it makes the, uh, the clinical condition and the purpose and uh, even more specific and more important to be justified under the MDR. Did we miss anything there, Celeste? I think I covered it. Um, it's great to get us started. Um, and I guess just to frame the conversation for today, we're getting so many questions on this and really excited to be here because try and understand like biological safety, equivalence, material, physical, chemical characterization, and how all of that is going to play together um, with biological equivalence. So I'm really excited to get going. Thank you. Good. Okay, Amy, you're up next. What was the intent behind the MDCG guidance and how did it help? Okay, so we're talking about 2020-5. Um, and so there's a, a bit of a long story behind this. I'll try and make it as brief as possible. I think that equivalent started getting noticed probably around 2007, 2008 with some particular device failures. And there was a much lighter touch approach to equivalence, particularly biological equivalence back then. And they really, you know, what they're trying to drive um, from about that time point is an interpretation that we really want for implants the materials to be the same, not just similar, not just lower risk, but the same. And progressively over time, the competent authorities kind of embellished this and developed it, and they really gave the notified bodies a, a hammering over it. And over that time period, it, it, the interpretation seemed to be migrating to not just same material, but identical material. And that was the kind of pressure the notified bodies were getting that, you know, even down to sometimes getting questions along the lines of if it's not the same supplier and it's a polymer, then it can't be the same. You need to, you know, and so so the, the question, you know, and, and this makes kind of equivalence almost not a possibility because no two polymers are going to be absolutely identical. No, you, and you know, then it calls into question, well, what's the purpose of standards? Why do you have material standards if you can, if you have to do all this other stuff and, and so on and so forth? So um, and the question I ask is, it, there's a logical point there that same can't mean identical because otherwise the MDR wouldn't say same material, but similar degradation products, similar leachables, extractables, et cetera. Otherwise, if it was meant to be identical, it would say same. So we, you know, we were lucky to have uh, the chair of the 10993 committee on that working group. And so the, the, the intent is to really clarify that this is a risk-based approach. Yes, the materials have to be the same, but same isn't exactly the same as identical. And it allows for the use of 10993 part 18, where Annex C talks about a risk-based approach where you look at the risks of those leachables and extractables. And, and essentially, if it's, I think the simple way of putting it is, it doesn't have to be identical, but if it's fewer components, it's one less potentially toxic agent, then that could be considered the same as long as it wasn't affecting any other parameters. So it's just to give a little bit more of a risk-based approach to the evaluation of biological equivalence. Okay, that was really helpful. So what's the difference between biological equivalence and biological safety? And how do we leverage 1093 test results? in support of biological equivalence beyond mere just biological safety. How about you, Jay? Sure, uh, Melissa, Amy, and Celeste, thanks for, thanks for setting it up. It really is a good segue into this very important question, Lisa, that you posed. Very often as reviewers, what we found was that 
a manufacturer mistakes biological safety for demonstrating biological equivalence. They're very different. A device made out of nylon can be just as biologically safe as a device made out of PBACs, right? But does that mean that they're equivalent? Not really. And this is where some of the other considerations come into play. So just know that while evaluating biological equivalence, the assumption is that biological safety has been adequately demonstrated, right? So once again, biological safety doesn't guarantee biological equivalence. And this is where I think it would be really beneficial for the audience to understand how a notified body reviewer approaches equivalence. And it's very different from, say, uh, looking at 510K-based equivalence. It's the two very different and distant realms, to be, to be very frank. So, it's, and it's, it's split into three main buckets. I'm not talking about technical, biological, and uh, clinical equivalents. Yes, those are the major tenets. But when we get into reviewing equivalents, the reviewer spends about 10% of their time in trying to understand what is identical and what is same. Great, you know, as soon as they get an understanding for that, fine, that goes to the back burner. Maybe another 20% of their time in time to understand what is similar, not identical, not, not same, what is similar. And in, in doing that, they try to focus on understanding, okay, are there any risks that arise out of this so-called similarity? And this is where the principle of equivalence really needs to be understood. Why does somebody want to claim equivalence? It's not just to satisfy the three tables for clinical, technical, and biological. It is to ensure that you can meaningfully leverage the clinical data from the equivalent device towards the subject device. That is the end goal of equivalence, right? So clinical, technical, biological are pillars and paths that lead to that eventual, eventually successfully leveraging clinical data from the equivalent device, right? So that said, 10% of the time on what is the same, 20%, 20-30% on what are similar and understanding risks, if any, that arise out of these similarities, right? And then the majority of the remaining chunk of time is actually focused on clearly assessing, questioning, interrogating the differences. The and, and unfortunately, when you present a 510K style table, your equivalence rationale ends with what's same and similar. It doesn't really talk about what's different and that's where the story breaks down and you get a whole host of questions in terms of, okay, tell us what is different because what the reviewer wants to really understand, and this is, this is important, are the differences. No two devices are the same. Even if you're claiming equivalence, no two devices are the same, right? It's not identical. That's the whole reason why you have another device. So the reviewer wants to understand what are the differences, what are the risks arising out of these differences, and what is the impact of the risks arising out of these differences on the clinical evaluation of the device with which you are claiming equivalence, all right? Now that brings me to the very important point, and I think which is the crux of today's conversation. How do you go about evaluating the word same? And how do you, say, and, and specifically from a biological equivalence standpoint, because for technical equivalence, you're within the realm of similarity, right? So as long as you can show that you're within the same design space, you can demonstrate similarity. For clinical, yeah, there are certain items associated with being same, and there are certain items associated with being similar. It's relatively easier. The trickiest part of equivalence is biological equivalence. We've set the stage saying that biological safety is not the same as biological equivalence. Now let's focus on what do you really mean by same, right? Under the ages of same, you could have a different grade or a different formulation for the same material. And what I mean by that is say different durometer or different degrees of crystallinity, right? Um, you could have a different type of the same material. Uh, an example of that could be varying densities of polyethylene, or you could have different types of nylon or PBACs or cyanoacrylate uh, type adhesives or different uh, resins with you know, small differences in formulation. You could have uh, same material that's processed differently, right? Um, you could have, and then, then come the more significant differences, but which could still fall under the important aspect of uh, biological equivalence, and that is very significantly different material. Here is where implantables need to be treated a little differently compared to short-term slash transient use devices, and here is where uh, manufacturers can be really smart in leveraging 10993 chemical characterization and consequent toxicological risk assessment 
to actually demonstrate that, you know, from a risk perspective, there are no additional risks, even though the material may be slightly different. There are ways to drive to that. And once again, you have to treat short-term transient use devices differently from implantables in case the material is different. Uh, there are different processing agents that could be used, different cleaning agents that could be used, different colorants, right? Uh, there could be differences in what are considered, quote-unquote, minor components, right? Uh, that can be really tricky. And uh, there are changes that, that can be made to non-patient contacting parts. That can be rather tricky, too, and needs a case-by-case -case evaluation. So I know, Lisa, we're going to focus on certain examples. Excuse my lengthy rant here. But I really wanted to set the stage for, yeah, even though you say something is same, the MDCG guidance allows us a little bit of leeway in terms of how you can use scientific justification and scientific methods to demonstrate that the eventual risk posed to leveraging clinical data from the equivalent device is not more than it should be. So, yeah, thank you. Okay. It's awesome. Jay, can I ask you some questions about that? I feel I learned a lot. Um, so, I, like, a lot of clients are asking me, okay, we have this biological evaluation report, and it sounds like what you're saying is they should be walking through that entire process you outlined of, here's the device, what we're saying is the same, these are the key differences, this is what's happening from a risk-based approach, here's how literature supports that, and then the end is, therefore, we can leverage this as biological equivalents and rely on that other device's clinical data. So that's really the intent of that whole report. Is that how? Celeste, yes, that is really the crux. I would like to add one additional step, and that is after you mentioned um, literature sources, right? That mm -hmm. is alluding to the historical usage of these materials in similar applications. There is one very important step, and it's all part of the risk assessment. And that is, uh, you know, that is clearly demonstrating with actual objective evidence. And you can you can significantly rely on chemical characterization along with the toxicological assessment to actually demonstrate that the risk level is not higher, right? Mm -hmm. And it's going to be different. If, say, for example, you know, the same material process differently is going to have to be looked at slightly differently from a different grade of the same material or a different formulation of the same material. Or if there are differences in cleaning and processing aids, that calls for a slight difference. Or if the surface morphology or topography for an implant changes slightly, you know, that calls for a slightly different investigation. So depending on what your risk assessment, um, you know, outputs, uh, so to speak, that will guide how you leverage chemical characterization, material characterization, physical characterization, and whatever else that needs to be done, in addition to any literature references that you may have. Okay, thank you. Hey, thanks guys. Now it is game time. So we are going to play a game of is it biologically equivalent or not, which is fun that we can call it a game because we geek out on stuff like this. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so we know when we go through these scenarios that every answer starts with it depends, right, based on device class or nature and duration <laughs> of contact and all the things that Jay was just talking about. But that's okay because we can talk through those as we go through. Um, have a sign that just raises it, say, it depends. Right. Yeah, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a bunch of different ones at a high level and then some specific examples that people send in ahead of time to insert in. So the first one, very simply, same material but different manufacturing method. Obviously, it depends. I have a couple specific examples uh, that we could talk around. So the first specific example from a client was rapid rapid manufactured orthopedic implant compared to a compression molded implant. Is it biologically equivalent? Is it is <laughs> you can't tell who who's looking at whom in this format, but um, <laughs> well, of course it depends. <laughs> It depends, at, but it's plausible. <laughs> yeah, no, it could be, and and I think this is sometimes a, a source of mis, you know, like there's a, a misunderstanding. So it it depends on what the raw materials are, assuming that the raw materials are the same, and it's not there's no sort of additions or things that would change that, nothing that would change, you know, the legibles and extractables, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, then they could be the same. Sometimes though, something could be biologically equivalent, but not mechanically equivalent. So you might end up with something that meets the biological equivalence criteria, but not the technical equivalence criteria. And or, and this is an interesting question, it's something that's direct com compression molded, potentially 
not technically equivalent, but in fact could be superior and that higher risk. So, anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm straying off of biological equivalence, which is our topic today. But yeah, is that is that an acceptable, it depends type of answer? Well, so I can give you my experience. I've been rejected with this and have had it accepted. And so I think biologically, if you say it's the same materials, it's made of the same materials, I think you technically have it. Well, I shouldn't say, use the word technically, but I think you have a scientifically justified argument as long as they are the same materials and you've done your testing to show that there are no additional extractables or leachables that are that are an issue and that impact safety and performance or it provide new risks. Um, I think where you run into trouble with these is usually the shape of the implants or what you're kind of claiming about the implant is a little bit different because it usually has a much more complicated structure internally. That's the reason you're doing it. You're making it look like bone typically in these instances. And so you usually don't do that with something that's just using standard traditional manufacturing methods, but these things enable you to make it and it looks a lot different in a kind of you're saying, oh, it can allow integration of bone, which can be a benefit, but it's somewhat unproven. So I think from a biological perspective, I think you can really probably have a good argument that they're the same as long as you have the testing to back it up. I do think it'd be hard to actually use it as an equivalent device because I think there are other hurdles that you have to get over unrelated to biological. I have seen that accepted as equivalent in the past, but as you say, it was accompanied by extensive testing to show the, you know, legibles and extractables, the residual monomer, the, you know, the, um, the mechanical testing that showed that in fact, but it's it, you do have to go through the whole gamut of testing, really, when you have something like that. You, you probably will get quite a few questions that hopefully won't take you over the new three round limit. I We have another specific example for this one. This one's longer to read, so tune in. Okay, so this one was submitted to us. Um, we have a project that is a process transfer of a hydrophilic coating process for guiding sheaths that are indicated for the radial axis and can treat all the way down to the aorta up behind the knee. It is a very long sheath, 190 centimeters. The coating formulation was a mixture of four different constituents. The original process used a specific mixed ratio of the constituents. And upon transferring the process internally, the process ended up being validated for a slightly different mixture ratio. The reason for this was to increase our internal shelf life of the mixture prior to coating and UV curing. Specific tests and runs for design verification and process validation were completed and passed. The most important tests were those associated with the contact angle, um, lubricity, durability, and adhesion of the coating. I love this one. I, I certainly think this one is plausible. And you have to rely, again, uh, you know, in terms of how my comments are going to be applicable to not just this device, but some of the other devices that the audience may be thinking about, take a step back, think about whether it's an implant versus whether it's a short-term or a transient use device, because that should actually guide your risk assessment. When it comes to something specifically to do with this device, I hope you have adequate clinical data on your original composition because that's that's the key here, right? Assuming that is there is a you know the answer to that is yes. In addition to all that you did for physical characterization, I think you'll be required to do a little bit of an extensive chemical characterization down to the level of understanding quantitatively and qualitatively qualitatively your ENL profile extractables and leachables along with a consequent tox assessment and what you have to be careful as far as your tox assessment is concerned because you change your formulation slightly is when you when you get that you know when you get the spectra from your chemical analysis whatever you choose to analyze it by and when you match it up with the libraries and i've seen this personally at bsi a lot of times when cases like this are presented you have a higher number of unknowns that are returned in terms of the comparison with the reference library and when that happens, even if your eventual margin of safety for all the known compounds is comparable to what your parent uh, coding was, you know you run into trouble with the review because you now you now you have a significantly higher higher number of unknown chemicals, and that poses a certain degree of unknown risk. So so while it is plausible, you know from what I understand of the device, it is a short term or transient use device. 
there is a path to equivalence. It is definitely possible, but you have to be very careful as far as uh, presenting, conducting your chemical characterization and presenting it in terms of showing that no additional risk has been performed. But I do think this is something that's possible, yeah. I have a quick question from the, oh, do you, do you have anything no, to add I, there? I, I just agree. I think the only thing is just to emphasize that the way Jay is describing it is a lot more than what most companies do when they're putting this in their CER as far as equivalence. I think most people say same materials, you have it in the table and you leave it at that and you say they're equivalent. But he's having testing to support this information and that's, I think that's oftentimes what's missing or very difficult to get. So I think it's important to to just consider that. Excellent point, John. Yeah. There's an audience question before we move to the next scenario in the game. Um, Jay mentioned the 10983 uh, chemical char characterization testing. Does it need to be that particular test or are other 10993 tests uh, equally applicable? I am not 100% sure of the drift of this question because as part of the 10993 chemical characterization suite, you, can, you have a plethora of tests that you can choose as far as your analytical methods are concerned. And if there are tests that are outside of what's mentioned in there, that's fine too. Um, you know, as long as you can justify the choice of your test, that's perfectly acceptable. Yeah. Okay. Next scenario: uh, same material but gamma sterilized mm -hmm. uh, change to ETO. Anybody had experience on that one? Yes, and it's fairly recently. And also, I'd say that's exactly where it'd be appropriate to look at other. 10993 tests aside from just uh, chemical characterization because in this case you want to know about any residuals from ETO sterilization. Uh, so I think it's plausible but you have to just show that the difference in sterilization techniques isn't going to have any impact. One additional item when it comes to a change from ETO to gamma. Uh, gamma can be tricky. I don't know what the base material here is. And typically, there is no chemical characterization or, you know, or even biological endpoint-based biological testing, uh, biocompatibility testing. I'm sorry, at the end of shelf life. So, for example, if you're working with a PBAX device, right, PBAX die cap for shelf life of four years, you test it, you you do the chemical characterization at time point zero. You don't do it at the end of four years. But if you do it at the end of four years, if there has been appreciable oxidative degradation, your spectra will show you lactams. And the reason I'm specific, specifically calling out lactams is because I've had personal experience with this, and that can lead to a, an increase in your toxicity profile. So when you make a sterilization change like the one that's under discussion, it's very important to provide an evaluation. I'm not saying testing, I'm saying a biological safety evaluation at the end of the device shelf life, because that will be a question that will most likely be posed. Okay, next one, uh, change the adhesive on my EKG sensor. <laughs> okay, uh, sorry, John, you were very <laughs> well. well I, I don't know it, but I, I will. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Anytime there's a change in material, I, I get very concerned. And so, uh, and it's pretty explicit when it says same material, there's no exceptions. And I, I know that, you know, we could talk about justifying it. And maybe if it's a, this isn't even really probably a low risk device, it, it's going to be difficult. You know, I may try it, but I'd probably lean towards probably not equivalent mm -hmm. or it'd be a very uh, difficult thing. So chances of success are slim. I don't know, Jay, what do you think? Do you agree, disagree? You know, I feel like um, I want to stick my neck out a little bit on this one. I, I think there is a path forward, but I, I want to caution you, say, if we justify our acceptance of biological equivalence, you know, based on the fact that this is, this is non-blood contacting or it's not an implant, we have to be careful because this is going to be contrasting with MBCG 2020-5, which states that exceptions in MedDev 2.7.1 Rev 4 for skin contacting and minor components are not acceptable under the MDR. So the reviewer is going to approach this aspect of the review with that commentary in mind, right? So just remember that a basic chem characterization may not be adequate here. 
right? You have to have some kind of biological endpoint. I'm thinking irritation, sensitization, that kind of thing, which can also be addressed through a certain degree of chemical characterization, but you're going to have to run through that checklist and make sure that there is a certain biological aspect, if it's not adequately covered through your toxicity assessment, to ensure that, you know, that contact with skin aspect is adequately addressed, because you will get questions due to that statement in there going from Rev 4 to 2020-5. And then from there on, it depends what actual objective evidence you have. Yeah, I would try and go go for it because it's like, no, yeah, take the risky approach. But it's in this case, I think it's the lowest risk component, maybe, and depending on the the chemical composition of the material, maybe it's used as adhesive and other similar types of skin contacting devices, and it might have a a uh, better risk profile, let's say, like less um, irritation events, um, and you can support that with literature and other post-market data, then it might be, might be worth a try. Okay, we have uh, a specific example scenario submitted related to material supplier change, but no change in manufacturing method. Uh, so the scenario is, a hernia mesh that uses polypropylene to manufacture some of the meshes. The specific polypropylene resin was discontinued, so we had to switch to a new lot of resin. Still polypropylene, but it is a new batch of resin, so it's possible there could be slight differences in the monomers. This one's definitely possible. Relying on your camp characterization, you're going to have to do EML testing anyway. Um, you start off with whatever incoming analysis you have, but get to that level of ENL and hopefully your margin of safety hasn't changed significantly. And um, hopefully you don't have too many unknowns when it comes to the spectrum that's returned as part of your analytical techniques. But this one, it, it, supplier changes happen often. Uh, notified body reviewers will definitely be pragmatic about it. It's not like you can go and conduct a clinical study. Uh, every time a supplier changes, but also bearing in mind that these meshes have been in hot water for a while now, I would say let's please leave no stone unturned when it comes to getting to the nth degree of chemical characterization. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay, this is, I think, something where the, the MDCG guidance is actually trying to address these kinds of things because if you have these kinds of changes come along and technically it's not exactly the same material, so that, that was the kind of intent behind the guidance to have a pathway through where you could show that there was no increased risk and and just to allow a little bit more pragmatism when these cases come up rather than you know defaulting to well from the notified body reviewer's point of view how do I you know I can't go back to the manufacturer and say he's going to do a clinical study for something this minor but really technically speaking the MGR doesn't seem to be allowing me to get around it so yeah I would agree. Okay what about additive manufactured versus traditionally manufactured? Yeah, I think, I think that's this the same thing, right? I think we answered this one. Yeah, I think this ties back to question one, actually. And, you know, depending on, is it an implant? If it's an implant, you've got to look at, uh, you know, the device contacting surface area, contacting chemistry, topography, morphology, has any of that changed, the mechanical aspects. Basically, what we covered in question one. Sorry, Amy, you were going to say something. No, 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 I agree. I mean, I, I was going to say, I, I did... Um, see a case where uh, a manufacturer got dinged for um, transient use surgical instruments that one was um, sort of additive manufactured and previously had been cast and it was you know to to allow for some for, for, for perfectly legitimate reasons the change was being made but the manufacturer got there in the end but it was more difficult than you would have thought, given that the raw materials were the same they'd shown that the end product was essentially the same and mechanically um, there was no new risks introduced, so it was it was surprising to me that there was such a, you know, for a, for a, a, um, a class two A surgical instrument that there was that much transiently used. There was that much scrutiny. But okay, what about you will, you'll get, you will get these one offs, won't you? So yeah. sure. How about different colorant. That one is tricky. That one can be really tricky. And, uh, you know, a lot of uh, most manufacturers in the US will have gone through several rounds of this with the FDA. 
So, you know, I'm not really sure uh, EU manufacturers may have that level of um, exposure to what some of the US manufacturers have gone through. Again, if, if you work with the FDA, you may just be okay. But if it is a patient contacting um, aspect, if it, is, if it is an implantable, it's tough. If it's a patient contacting aspect, um, again, it, whenever colorants change, it, it, is, it is a really touchy topic. But once again, it is plausible. There is a path there. Once again, rely on chemical characterization and your subsequent toxicity, toxicological risk assessment. You know, and if, if it comes out that really there isn't any heightened risk, then you definitely have a path forward. Yeah. But colorants, although although they seem like a very simple change, you know, it may just be the manufacturer changing the ink with which they're printing something on their actor or something like that. Uh, it just tends to get a lot more involved than what you may initially think. So that's why that whole risk assessment aspect becomes really important. Sorry, Melissa, you were going to say something. No, I was just going to ask um, your thoughts and the panel thoughts, though, too, just when thinking about like the duration of contact, let's say, on that colorant change, right? So to your mm -hmm. point, if it's the ink on a catheter versus, you know, whether it's a colorant used in a button on a, you know, like a syringe or an auto injector, you know, mm -hmm. just the consideration of, of the use of the device as well, yes. um, you know, for in terms of that risk assessment and whether or not that's a plausible change to be equivalent. Absolutely. That's, that's key. It's interesting. It might be something where it's become more flexible because I, I went on um, some FDA training. I think it was like in 2004, 2005 on biological safety, and they were obsessed with colorants at that point in time. I don't know if, if you saw questions like that, but there was a that, they, there seemed to be a real focus on colorants. And this is a you know significant change. And why is it being added and so on and so forth? And it was like, well, if it's not if it's only contacting in, you know, intact skin, um, then that could be acceptable. But if it's going into something that's invasive and definitely an implant, then there's no good reason for it. And then um, when I had MHRA training in, I think it was 2008, they were kind of of a similar persuasion that was basically saying, again, the same kind of, I don't know if the FDA shaped their thinking at all, but they were having the same kind of dialogue of like, well, what, why? Why are you changing a colouring? What's the point of that? And if it's in an implant, you know that. Um, but it, it it seems to evolve that there is a more like it, it that evaluation of well, well, why are you changing it? There might be a good reason for it. What's the risk of it? What you know, and and how common is that colouring? What other evidence is available to support it? And going back to this leachables and extractables testing and insensitization and irritation and all that kind of stuff. So I think it might. I could be wrong, but it might possibly be one area that's a little bit more pragmatic now but i think only because the fda were so incredibly hot on it for some reason or other we have a couple questions from the audience uh first one from an endoscopy company we've always completed 1093-5-10 and-11 for resin changes or manufacturing changes that we believe affect the biocompatibility of the devices are you suggesting that Dash 18 should also be completed in some manner to show biological equivalence on top of biological safety? It really depends on, you know, what, first of all, whether you're claiming equivalence or not. And um, secondly, if things have changed. I just want to reiterate biological safety is not the same as biological equivalence, right? For example, if something has changed, um, they can still be biologically safe, but if you are to successfully demonstrate equivalence, 10993-18 is something you can heavily rely on. Uh, that said, that is not the only path, but since the thought process in EU is to understand whether the clinical data from the equivalent device still remains applicable to the subject device, it is a risk-based game, right? Understanding what level of risk is posed to the existing clinical evaluation for the equivalent device. And one way to get to that point is to show that your margin of safety is no lesser than what you previously had, which makes leveraging that clinical data still a, a, a risk-free, relatively risk-free or low-risk reality. And for that, how do you get the objective evidence to demonstrate that? And that is through detailed chemical characterization. Where applicable is depends on the nature and duration of contact and all of those items in there. But it is worth considering dash 18 um, if it if, if it applies as far as uh, specific changes may be concerned. 
Yeah, and I would say that most of the time, these sort of things you're not like typically I don't see in the CERs where people are claiming equivalence when they change a process or something like that. That's mm -hmm. usually handled in the the testing side of things. And in the CER, you might describe the changes, but it's not necessarily you're putting a, an equivalence justification in place. That doesn't mean in the future that that might be expected to some extent, but I think oftentimes the line from when you want to say you're using equivalence and not using equivalence can be a little bit gray. And in one of these areas, for this particular instance, it probably is more like I, I haven't really seen people going to that level of detail when they're claiming equivalence. That's usually when they make more substantial changes. But all of that would be in a, the biological evaluation report, right? That's yeah. where you would have that argument and present the data. Absolutely. That's Yeah, it's design and development is typically where that is, in my experience, has been located. I haven't seen people really going to that detail when they're doing equivalence. Uh, unless there's other changes. Mm -hmm. Okay, next uh, question from the audience. Uh, for colorants, is the change, if the change is only on the handle, not patient contacting, is it easier to justify? And we just, we just look, this company makes like ablation devices, soft tissue dissection, cryo nerve block probes, so things like that, if you only change the color on the handle. So, you know, on the face of it, it does, it does present an easier path, but in this case, you have to consider the user as well, mm -hmm. right? So anything, anything, and you have to consider the user and you have to consider any, any foreseeable misuse or any damage that happens and thereby patient exposure to the same, right? So when it comes to, when it comes to colorants, you're, Again, low risk approach. If you have your ENO profile and your margin of safety coming from that, you really have solid objective evidence based on state of the art recommendations for the standard to fully rely on. Once again, let it be risk assessment based, but make sure you consider both the patient and the user any foreseeable misuse and, or patient exposure due to damage. Yeah, it sounds like this is a really unique case maybe the user is wearing a glove if it's like a sterile mm -hmm. procedure and so it's actually like really it's user contacting but you know there's a barrier and then also maybe the color change is due to prevent misuse or based on user feedback so it might be that there's a benefit like from a risk benefit perspective to make the change that could also be leveraged that's great point. point to us, yeah. Okay, next one. Uh, different degrees of cross-linking within the same material. Yeah, this this <laughs> this is this is a a very very relevant item. Uh, and once again, I would suggest take a step back, think about is this is this a you know a, a transient use device slash short-term use device. Or is this is this an actual implant, right? I would I would suggest you you definitely look at your release characteristics depending on what has changed, right? Um, for example, I give you an example of a drug coated balloon, right? The eventual uh, performance and the 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 duration of the positive benefit enjoyed by the patients seems to vary depending on whether the drug is supplied, you know, is is delivered. Uh, the drug that is delivered is in a crystalline form versus some other manufacturers that have an amorphous one, right? This is a much more involved discussion, but just an example that came to my mind. I would suggest looking at release characteristics, um, look at material characterization, uh, your tox assessment. Depending on what the actual device is, your final device and blood contacting surface chemistry, area morphology, hopefully remain unchanged, right? Um, and then any items impacting material interactions within the same device, lifetime considerations, if there are polymers involved, I'd say glass transition temperature um, and, and oxidation, once again, if polymers are involved, oxidation degradation over time, and then your biological safety evaluation at the end of your shelf life. If you consider all of this and you are able to show with objective evidence that there is no additional risk, part four. I think it probably also depends on what kind of device it is and, and how it's used. Mm -hmm. So you and, and it might this might be another case of where sometimes it might be possible to show biological equivalence, but it's not technically equivalence. And then yeah, there's a kind of a crossover between biological and technical equivalence in that, for example, say it's a bearing in an orthopedic implant, and you know the degree of cross-linking could affect 
the where and the, the kind of where de debris that you generate, and then the kind of where debris that you generate could affect local inflammation, aseptic loosening, and so on. And so there could be a whole host of other things that are linked to what at first glance looks like a difference in technical equivalence, but then has sort of ramification, ramifications for biological equivalence. So it's a, yeah, an interesting question. What about a dental filling material change? It's quite broad. Yes. Yeah. In this case, <laughs> we'll the change. Yeah. Mm, I don't know. What would it be? Can... I, I think so, it would be not equivalent, probably. If you're changing yeah. your filling, that's an, I think that's considered an implant under it the implant. Implant, right? And so I, it's yeah. a tough one. I would yeah. go with this probably not as plausible versus plausible. <laughs> I'd agree, John. Yeah. What if you change a wound care product to add a little silver to it? Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big no. We don't even have to say that to Ken. That's a no. Yeah, right. Even yeah. if we're not making any claims around the water. Well, it doesn't matter. Silver, what if there's already silver? They're adding a little. Does that mean they're adding silver to it? It already has it? What if they're increasing the amount of silver? That is well, going I, very tough. I mean, first of all, it's going to trigger all kinds of medicinal reviews, whether or not you you have yeah. a claim around the medicinal aspects. That that makes it that that, that is that is a tough one. So, and this is that the classic scenario as well, where the manufacturer says, "Oh, we're only adding a little teeny tiny bit more silver," and then you say, "And why are you doing that?" Oh, because to reduce infections. Well, then it's not it's not oh, an insignificant change. You're doing it for a reason. Yeah. I think, yeah, and in, in, even if you went the other way, if you took away some silver, that, you know, probably wouldn't be considered biologically equivalent. So, yeah, I think silver is is, is kind of a trigger word anyway because of the history yeah. behind silver. So, even if there are no claims, even if we're not claiming it, we're just why, putting why silver would you in there it? because... Well, because people like to always make a change for a reason. You don't kind of whimsically say on a Thursday, <laughs> you know what? I think we need just five percent more silver. No, no reason. Just it would look nice. Oh, there's always a reason behind a change. So, for me, I don't know what specifically the risks associated with silver are to the patient, right? So I think it comes down to potentially, and I don't like I said, I don't know a lot about silver. And but you, it provides a benefit of reducing infection in theory, but also what's the benefit it's providing to the patient, and so I think or the risks to the patient. And I don't know enough to say that. Okay, no way would I do this. I don't know. But it was a silver-containing implant that probably kicked yeah. off all the screen. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know whoever is interested in this silver thing. We, we won't say the name of the off. product. Oh, it, it, it's it's this is public information actually. I mean, look up silver. No, no, I know, but I didn't want to, you know, even though it's public, <laughs> I didn't want to finger a particular manufacturer. <laughs> yeah, but there's a big space out there, which and that pretty much triggered everything you see in equivalence day. That one case yeah. is where that increasing scrutiny on biological equivalence. So I almost wonder if the question asker was toying with us a bit there by bringing up the silver question just to see how we'd respond. Maybe. <laughs> Honestly, I, I think we've had a harder time getting uh, silver through FDA than we have through the notify bodies, our client yeah. experience. The FDA was directly involved in that, so yeah. Yes, uh, let's see, one more. I'm not sure sure if I completely understand this one. In a dialysis machine, a change to one of the solutions that contacts the blood but isn't intended to be put back into the patient. Hmm. You know, I, I would probably like just think the definition of biological equivalence, it's the same materials and substance with the same fluids and tissues. And so I think in this case, if you're making a change and it's contacting fluids and tissues, I, I think it kind of falls into that. You have to have it be the same. So it's probably going to be looked at in that way. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I guess I'm a little more hesitant on equivalence because I've seen it rejected a lot more. So <laughs> it makes me always a little bit scared. My daughter's here. Um, <laughs> please leave. Here she doesn't know she's live. Oh, God. So, 
<laughs> Maybe Jake can answer. <laughs> well, can I just talk about this? So this particular one, right, John? What do you think about the fact that it's um, similar, you know, kind and duration of contact, right? When you're looking at it from that, um, from a biological perspective, right? Because you haven't, it's you're not changing those elements out of the material. Is the question coming from the perspective that as a dialysate solution, it's not coming into direct contact? with the patients, or theoretically is not coming into direct contact, it's encouraging things to diffuse across the barrier from the blood. But I think it would come under the question of unknown unknowns. Mm -hmm. So I think it would probably still be a no, but I think I'm wondering yeah. if that's what, the, what the, the sort of stimulus behind the question is, is, you know, come on, it's not really patient contacting. But I think that the concern there would be that some, something could go the other way across the barrier. Yeah, and the risks seem rather high, so that's the other angle. Yeah, and there, there. I mean, there was another big case of, um, you know, a lot of patients dying because of residuals in hemodialysis machines, and that's not kind of a million miles removed from that potential. I mean, it is different, but you know what I mean. It's not a million miles removed from that, so there are potentially very significant consequences. Did we miss any scenarios? That was it for everything that was requested. No, I, I just think for me, if it's a different material, I always get worried, <laughs> you know? So I think you really need to take it serious. And whenever you say like, oh, it doesn't matter, it still matters to the notified body because they have to answer to what is on in that MDCG guidance. And it says there's no exceptions. And so just by saying, oh, it's a different material, but these are all commonly used or these are yeah, both accepted. It, it okay. really, that's where the difference between biological equivalents, you're saying it is equivalent to this device and that's where you say it's the same material. And so any deviations from that, you need to, it, it, you sh it, it has to be taken seriously. You yeah. know, and you have it, to have this, it, they, I, I've seen it a lot of times and it's a long battle a lot of times. So you have to be very careful. Not saying yeah. you can't do it, but it's, it's a hard thing. I yeah. think anything implantable you wouldn't get a different yeah. material and yeah. even you know now that new interpretation of removing that thing with intact skin kind of you think really mm. yeah yeah if it's if it's an implant it's almost a no-go you you have a potential pop when it's a short-term transient use device if you if you in the right earnest do the detailed chem characterization which a lot of manufacturers don't like doing for short-term and transient use devices which is why i'm trying to know, push for some more stronger considerations of uh, 1093-18 as part of your risk assessment and mitigation, because that could be really helpful in two ways. In one, in your biological equivalence rationale, right, right off the right off the bat. Secondly, in the future, if you make any changes, you have a very solid baseline chemical characterization. You make any changes in your processing, manufacturing, or suppliers. All you'll need to do is repeat that chem characterization and show your notified body the delta. And you can actually stay away from a lot of the time and cost intensive biological endpoint based biocompatibility tests. So there are, you know, there are multiple benefits to actually pursuing the path of chem characterization, although that may seem a little tedious up front, but if you have a long-term vision, it could be really beneficial. And the only other thing I'd add is PMCF is important. So if you do have these differences, they're going to be looking to see what is in your PMCF plan and whether or not you have, are going to be looking at these and monitoring any issues. So, sorry. No, that's okay. I just wanted to add to both of those and to kind of piggyback off of what uh, Jay had said originally, which is that, you know, the biological characteristics are really the kind of the most gray area, it seems like, or where most of the questions come in. But I think we've seen some really good examples today, though, too. We're doing that really robust gap assessment and looking at your risk um, to, you know, to see, even though it may be a material change that's similar, but there are some that have um, perhaps unintended um, performance changes in the device as well, right? And so um, just making sure that uh, you're looking at it in that you know, a very robust, holistic perspective um, and not just in isolation looking at one area or another. Yep, good point. One, one last quick question from the audience. When will this conversation between the notified body and manufacturing likely, likely come up in the review process? Round one questions. Yeah. Round one. Would it come up, though, in that check at the beginning? No. No. So, this is, so this is all part of the details. This is part of the details. 
this is only going to come through once they look at your you know risk management your biological safety evaluation report and then get into biological equipment so this is deep into the review and it will come out in round one questions well it's important to know then because that's probably six months after you send in your application so absolutely. you've really lost a lot of time if you've tested the waters and sent something that's not going to work absolutely so now, okay the, that was okay. oh go ahead what's the probability if they don't ask about it in round one that they it could go to a different reviewer who maybe is more savvy with regard to biological properties and it should be the same reviewer throughout unless it's something where that reviewer says actually this is more complex than i'm used to i'd like to get an opinion from somebody with more biological safety expertise than i do but generally speaking it should be with that reviewer to begin with uh, you know, and then they shouldn't be swapping and changing reviews because it's very difficult to pick up somebody else's review in the middle. I mean, obviously, the people collaborate. You could have different types of expertise, but in terms of the principal review, that doesn't normally change. I thought clinical, though, comes in at some point, right? Are they always but, involved so they in round be one? Asking, clinical shouldn't be asking about biological safety. It should come up before then. So, well, it depends. I mean, it really depends. If you're with BSI, you know, sometimes the technical and the clinical reviewers are the same, right? Sometimes yeah. they're different. Now, say, for example, in the odd event that maybe you have a relatively newer reviewer, or maybe it's a it's a review team, not just one reviewer looking at the entire file. So it's it's possible to have a separate reviewer. If you're with BSI, every reviewer gets their three rounds of questions. So it may be another technical reviewer that's posing it, but if you got it from that reviewer, that is round one for from that reviewer. So hopefully that helps. Actually, I know, having said that, I, I am aware of occasionally when, like, so the clinical reviewer being separate from the technical reviewer, the technical reviewer was reasonably happy with the biological equivalence, then the clinical reviewer was saying, well, actually, that drug elution profile will be different for that particular device. So although it's the same total amount of drug delivered, it's delivered in a different way, and that did trigger an additional question that hadn't been picked up by the original reviewer. So it is possible that additional questions get picked up. Okay, that's a wrap for today. That was a really good discussion. Thank you, everyone. Thanks to the audience for submitting questions. Appreciate it. <laughs>